0: After losing Russell Wilson to a hand injury, and to the Rams on the field, how much trouble are the Seahawks in? Can Geno Smith keep them relevant till Russ gets back? ESPN's Mina Kimes enters the Cigar Lounge to discuss that, the John Gruden fallout, and much more. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with producer extraordinaire Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts podcast. Mike, how are we doing today?
1: Unlike the Seattle Seahawks, I'm doing pretty well, Jackson. How are you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing great, man. Yeah, man, Seahawks, Seahawks been up and down more than Bitcoin this season. I I think it's hard to think of a single time, though, in the last decade where the outlook has felt worse than it does right now. Uh, Fortunately, the lounge is a safe space to explore those feelings and see what's there once the smoke clears. And we couldn't ask for a better guest to be joining us in parsing those particulars than the one we have today. You know her from her ubiquitous presence on ESPN and as the swinger of the coldest blade on Twitter. She is the inimitable Mina Kimes. (laughs) Mina, thank you for taking the time.
2: Thank you for having me in in, in advance of uh, maybe the worst Sunday night football matchup in recent memory, and that is mm-hmm. saying a lot.
0: It really is. Yeah. Well, you know, we wanted to save the best game for you, so <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. we appreciate it. Uh, Mina, your rise as a voice within sports media has been incredible to watch, um, and it's cool to see your influence on national conversations surrounding not only sports, but the unique way that sports overlaps with culture. But can you tell us a little bit about your journey from how you got started in journalism to where you're at today?
2: Well, it all started before the Russell Wilson era of the Seattle Seahawks. I met a guy named Jackson Bevins on Twitter. And, and who knew that, that that fortuitous circumstance would launch me towards uh, <laughs> where I am now? No, um, yeah, I was, I, I, as you know, Jackson, i um, I was a business journalist for a while after college, but I was a huge Seahawks fan, pretty active on the Seahawks Twitters. Didn't really exist back then, I think, though. But anyways, I um, was a business journalist, passionate about football. ESPN uh, hired me to be a writer, uh, and so I wrote about not just football, but I wrote magazine stories for a few years before transitioning into an analyst role, which is what I do now, so um you know i'm on a show called nfl live and then i have my own podcast meeting time show featuring lenny
0: who is a total scene stealer on that show by the (laughs) way you know
2: he brings he brings the heat do you have a lenny equivalent yet or
0: well i mean i got as you know i got toby but um you you know he's he's a little microphone shy it's the difference
2: Mm. it takes time it takes time it does
0: It does. <laughs> well, there is lots to get to with the aforementioned Seahawks, and we'll do that shortly. Uh, but Mina, you've been at the forefront of the biggest developing story in NFL circles this week, and that is the resignation of John Gruden. How did we go from Gruden being the highest paid NFL coach in history off to a 3-0 and start with the Raiders to resigning on Monday?
2: Well, it's funny. It's not funny. It, it's interesting because it really starts on Friday, right? With with the Wall Street Journal's revelation of uh, the first comment made, racist comment made by John Gruden in, in an email that surfaced as part of the NFL's investigation into the Washington Football Team. An investigation, the findings of which have not been made public, and uh, the and we're hearing will not be made public, which is something that bothers me personally a lot. Um, but the so he. The, he After that comment gets out, he makes this racist comment about Demore Smith, who's the head of the Players Association. Um, It seems like he's going to survive it, frankly. You know, people were defending him, giving him the benefit of the the doubt, uh, buying his excuse, and that really, I I won't say surprised me because it did not surprise me, but it really bothered me just that it, it was kind of like, all right, we're all moving on, even though this person wrote something that was clearly... Um, horrible, and then of course you know the, we get to Monday, and then all, uh, there's this outpouring of all these comment excerpts from emails, which Gruden is, and I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast knows, knows already makes more comments that are misogynistic, homophobic, going after the players for their protests for racial justice, going after the NFL for caring about concussions. Like it, it's just this smorgasbord of awful, and he resigns immediately, um, and. It all, it, 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 people can say it happened really fast it did happen really fast but i think what's important to note is the sentiments were not expressed quickly they were expressed over the course of many years this is not a single mistake made by a kid who was 13 on the internet which is the thing we're kind of we often navigate with sports this is a grown man saying hateful things about the kind of people who play for him, who work with him, who should be um, in positions of power in the NFL. And it's brought about, you know, I think some good conversations, but also some discourse that's been pretty frustrating to see unfold.
0: Yeah, you mentioned a minute ago that it bothered you that the whole investigation hasn't been made public. Is it to the point where instead of seeing – isolated leaks about individual persons and and sort of serving them up as a sacrificial lamb are are we to the point where we should be past that and let's just instead of you know seeing sweeping away a little bit of dirt that got out from under the rug just lifting up the whole rug
2: yeah i agree i I think that's a good way of putting it and i think um it's very telling that john gruden felt comfortable not only saying those awful things. And by the way, I I, I, mean, I, I know I listed some of the things they did. Also sh- sharing, being p- part of these emails that were shared, these topless photos of the Washington football team cheerleaders, which is, you probably remember was part of the original uh, investigative series by the Washington Post into the culture there. A, a culture under Dan Snyder who is still an owner of that team and should not be, which is something I've been saying for a while. But, um, yeah, so it, it's – the fact that he was so comfortable expressing that, I think is really freaking telling, right? In a work email with people who are in high positions. Um, it suggests that he is not alone in not only feeling these this way, but also saying these things. And then again, to take it back to the Washington football team, it's that comfort and privilege. And in that particular place, especially as it pertains to uh, WFT, misogyny, which was really was at the root there, um, it's all of that that has made the league a difficult, not difficult, but like regressive, I think. And it's just not only horrible to hear from not only anyone who belongs to any of the litany of groups that he's defended, but it's horrible to feel like we're all just going to move on, to your point. Like, okay, we we got him, one guy. No, it's not one guy. And this, again, the Washington football team, the revelation, the findings were not made public, and they paid a fine, and that was it. And so, yeah, it, p- it pisses me off that, like you said, that that it's being treated like a one bad apple situation.
0: Yeah, you know, and and it's it's curious to think about to kind of play out the thought experiment where if the whole rug did get lifted up, either through. The NFL saying, "Yep, we need the accountability. Let's let's expose it all." Or some massive data dump leak of of kind of all of the stuff from the investigation. Can the NFL survive that? Like, if this is as widespread as I, I think a lot of us assume it is, in terms of just like you said, the comfort level in speaking in these terms with each other. Uh, I, I mean, could could the NFL survive the takedown of? N- Numerous high-profile coaches, GMs, owners, et cetera, if all of it were to be laid bare and if all of that stuff was as pervasive as uh, we suspect it might be.
2: I think if there are people in positions of power in the league who not only feel the way that John Gruden does about so many groups uh, but in America, frankly, but also feel comfortable expressing those views in public and, again, especially in a work environment, but... If there are people like wh- executives owners whatever who are like john gruden then the nfl will not only survive uh expunging them it'll be a better league mm-hmm. i feel that way mm-hmm. um so we'll see what happens next jackson i, I it's been super dispiriting today something that kind of hit my just really hurt i i saw while i was taking my show earlier a tweet came out that carl nasa was the nfl's first active out player on the Raiders was taking a personal day and man that just made me fucking angry like that John Gruden put him in this position where he has to answer for his hate speech and then I made the mistake of reading people's replies and and, oh, and, and, and which is a good you know I was reminded like this isn't a John Gruden problem it's a society problem and I think that's something that we should all kind of Uh, be cognizant of but just reading that kind of just made me so angry I just had to take a second because these are real human beings and to be told not only that someone you've been around him you know for a while now that he feels that way it just is absolutely brutal
0: well yeah absolutely And, and a man that he's not only been around but has major impact on his career prospects right and, and and has his boss. And, you know, I, I say this with as much self-awareness as as I can have, um, realizing that I am a straight white male who is shielded from a lot of this. Right. There aren't there aren't slurs about any of the boxes I check on a census that I have to just sort of hide the way that it hurts me, you know, in order to, to not be singled out. And, and I, I feel for players like Carl Nasib, um, for, for, you know, women, for minority groups, for people that are in a situation where those in professional power above them have the freedom to speak this way and, and just having to figure out what the best way to deal with that is and do the risk assessment of speaking up versus staying quiet.
2: I think that's kind of where I also net out on this is like from a personal standpoint, just thinking through, okay, so other than the fact that I think the NFL needs to reveal more and especially as it pertains to the Washington football team, what, what can we walk away with? And like, you know, you and I, I mean, people we know don't say these things that he said, but I, I, I have been in rooms, perhaps I've been on emails where people have said things I didn't agree with that I didn't feel right about, but I didn't want to speak up. And I think for anyone who's listening and like who was reading this or kind of taking it in and processing it, that's what you want to walk away with, which is don't let those people feel comfortable saying these things. Um, and And I think that's something we're all capable of doing better at.
0: Yeah. You know, this, this seems like an opportunity. Any, anytime something like this comes to the forefront of a national conversation, it does seem like an opportunity to move forward culturally and, and to say like, yeah, okay, this is, this is something that we should be watching out for whether it's out of an, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I used to think it was okay to say that, or a, a fear of quote unquote being canceled or whatever. Uh, you know, this is an opportunity. I think for us to be a little bit more careful with our speech and a little bit less inclined to be flippant with, uh, with the language that we use. And and it's going to be interesting to see what the fallout for col- football culture, kind of writ large, is uh, with all of this, and and whether this is just today's story, and it, you know, until the next stupid thing that Urban Meyer says pops mm. up, or. If this is something that really has tremors that, that carries through the rest of the season and into the future.
2: Yeah, Urban Meyer, truly the only winner in all of this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that gives him one.
2: His first W of the season. <laughs> yeah, Although they got exactly. um they got the Seahawks in a couple weeks. So. I
0: know. I know. Yeah. Well let's let's bring it back let's bring it back to the field. The Seahawks played the Rams a week ago and Man, it's hard to imagine things going much worse for the franchise (laughs) than they did that evening. Now, you're familiar with both teams. Uh, You you know, you've been a a Seahawks fan your whole life, Um, but you've also been behind enemy lines doing broadcast work for the Rams. Russell Wilson's injury aside, and we'll we'll talk more about that. Until that point, did this game go the way you thought it would?
2: No. Um, I actually think, okay, so the first half of the game – First of all, Seattle should Seattle should have been ahead, but I was really surprised by the Rams' offensive struggles. And I haven't rewatched it, but um, I think a lot of that can be attributed, unfortunately, not to the Seahawks' defense playing particularly well, but Matthew Stafford just looked really off. Uh, you know, the the there were the yards were there if he wanted them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just missing some wide open receivers and. I think that, you know, and this was all before he hurt his finger, by the way, much less of an injury. But I think that's something to keep, to monitor with Stafford now because he comes out guns blazing, huge performances to open the season. But I think in that first half, you saw a little bit of potentially what you've seen in the past from him, which is kind of inconsistency, right? Like, okay, is this guy going to be good from start to finish? Now, he was very good in the second half. But if, like, we're thinking about the Rams as a Super Bowl team, I would say, you know, there have been moments this season where you see, oh, right, this is why perhaps Matthew Stafford was not regarded as one of the NFL's elite, Um, and and I don't think is right now. Like, I was just talking to a colleague about the QBs that we would put in the MVP conversation, and, you know, Stafford hasn't been mentioned, and some of that is probably just kind of getting beaten by the Cardinals the way they did, but I do think there's a little bit of inconsistency there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how they move forward as, as a franchise. You know, I agree with you. It was amazing to see Seattle hold the Rams, I think to three points in, in the first quarter, but, or first half, excuse me. I think I think if you just tuned in and looked at the box score, you would be absolutely shocked. I think you're right though that that had more to do with how the Rams were playing on offense and how Stafford was playing than it did with Seattle shutting them down. Um, we saw a lot more of the same soft and oftentimes confused coverages, uh, uh, a lack of consistent pass rush, and and just it. It's hard to watch these games with the feeling of helplessness that often comes with, <laughs> with this season, you know, when the team's on defense and, and getting to the point where, you know, if you don't stop them in those first couple of first downs, I'm almost like, just let them score so our offense doesn't sit there for 30 minutes.
2: I, You know what's so frustrating about the Seahawks defense? Um, and I say this. So I was just talking to Kevin Clark about the Chiefs defense. And can this be fixed? And mm-hmm. I actually think, like, because these are two of the worst defenses in the NFL statistically by any measure. The, the, the Seahawks defense is, I would say, I'm sure Chiefs fans feel equally frustrated, but in some ways it's actually more annoying watching them because I think the Chiefs defense, especially with Chris Jones out, uh, you know, in, in the last game, there's not a lot Steve Spagnuolo can do. Like, when I watch them, I'm not like, wow, the, these guys – They should be doing X, Y, and Z and playing more zone or blitzing more, whatever. They they don't have a lot of talent there um, at key positions outside of, you know, Matthew's not even having, like, a great season, to be honest. But outside of Chris Jones, there's so many issues there. Whereas the Seahawks defense, I actually think there's talent on that side of the ball. Um, I think there's a lot of poor – it's a combination of poor execution and – some really dubious coaching decisions in my opinion so in some ways it's actually more frustrating watching them because I don't think they should I don't think they're look look take that group of players I don't care if Belichick's coaching them they're not one of the best defenses in the league but I don't think they should be a bottom five defense based on the players they have
0: no certainly when you look at the sheer asset allocation to the defense between uh you know you got Bobby Wagner, obviously, has been Hall of Famer, and he's been pretty steadfast, but they got first-round picks in LJ Collier and Jordan Brooks, uh, Carlos Dunlap, who's been a pro bowler, Jamal Adams, obviously. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, investment, capital investment in this defense and a lot of on-paper talent, and to see them look so fractured is is stunning to me, especially coming from a coach who built his now Hall of Fame resume on the back of his defensive scheme. And and what's confusing for me, and maybe you've seen something that I've missed, what's confusing for me is, okay, I get it. The, the LOB is special. We're never going to see a defense like that ever again. And that's fine. That is not my expectation at all. They've tried a few different defenses since then. It's not like they're still running single high safety for 10 years waiting for the next Earl Thomas to come along. They they've gone with a number of different looks and none of them have worked. None of them have worked. And and I think for me and we I actually want to chat with you about this a little bit. The the most divisive player on the team right now is Jamal Adams. And and for me, I feel like The process behind the trade is fine if you're going to let Jamal Adams be Jamal Adams, which to me is a hunter where you take care. You have the other 10 guys take care of their responsibilities, and then you let this alpha predator go hunt. And they haven't been doing that. They did against San Francisco, and he played lights out. He was amazing. And then they reverted back to whatever that was against the Rams where they're asking him to cover guys 30, 40 yards downfield. Um, he he looks like he's unsure of what his role is. He's a see-ball, get-ball player. It, and it reminds me a little bit of the Jimmy Graham trade where I was fine with the process behind that too if you're bringing him in to be Jimmy Graham. But instead, they put his hand in the dirt and tried to make him a blocker 50% of the time. I that That, to me, has been the most frustrating part of the whole Jamal Adams situation.
2: Yeah, so I was texting with my colleague Ryan Clark, of course former NHL safety himself, during uh, the Rams game, asking him, like, dude, Jamal, like, what? how does he look so bad in coverage right now? And, and Ryan wrote back to me, and he was like, you know, they're playing so much split safety, right? Like, so with New York, and I think at, at times with the Seahawks intermittently, um, he was like, the, he was like cam, frankly. They would use him like cam, um, not just as a blitzer, but covering tight ends, uh, man-to-man, um, dropping, you know, uh, into the hook area, the curl hook area. So I, I, I think what's been so puzzling is when they have used him, as you said, as deep safety and asked him not only cover space, but to drive down on ball. Like, he—his he, skill set is—I I know people make jokes about the linebacker, but— candidly it is more mm-hmm. similar to a mm-hmm. linebacker and so I, I think it's not true that he's not a good football player was a trade ill-advised yeah probably but that's whatever it's in the past what we know now is that he his traits are not being exploited and that doesn't again that doesn't mean you blitz him on every play right but he should not be um, playing deep uh, the way he's been playing, in my opinion, at all. And I think it, it's been really it, – last week you said you're right. Compared to the Niners game, it was really confusing. I mean, there was the the weird underthrown ball to Deshaun. I think that's just kind of like a nightmare play that, frankly,
1: like, oh I don't gosh, think he's – Oh, totally. Hitting.
2: Just bad throw. It's Deshaun Jackson. You're not – like, I think a lot of safeties would make that mistake, candidly. But um, and then of course he's having to deal with the fact that Sidney Jones is making mistakes all the time as well, and it's just a tough situation. But like when we look at the Seahawks defense, and we ask, okay, how can we move forward? How can we be better in the future? I think Jamal Adams is the most like figuring out what to do with him is the most important thing, and I think ultimately going to determine whether this this defense is one of the worst in the NFL or just like below average
0: yeah yeah and and you know all all we need them to be for seattle with with a healthy russell wilson for seattle to be competitive like we've seen in the past is just be like average or slightly below it like you don't have to go out and dominate and shut teams down what you need to do is to be able to get off the field what you need to do is give a russell wilson-led offense more than seven or eight tries a game to score points and and to just be paper cut to death all season long is is really frustrating. You know, uh, I, yeah, yeah. You got to risk the stab wound once in a while and, and go out and try and force the issue instead of constantly reacting, which, which is how it has felt. Uh, on the other side of the ball, uh, we saw an offense that I thought looked pretty good uh, in the first half. You know, they only came away with seven points. Part of that is... You know, uh, A holding penalty wiped out a touchdown that then led to a missed field goal, but they were moving the ball. They were getting a lot of first downs. DK Metcalf was putting it on Jalen Ramsey a number of times, which was awesome because that's like my favorite matchup in football is when those two lock horns. Uh, So it was really cool to see them be unafraid of that. Uh, And then Russ gets hurt. And as Avon Barksdale once said, the game is the game. But the biggest development here is the fact that for the first time in 10 years, Seattle's going to play football without Russ. And and it, he is deserving of an incredible hat tip for going this long without missing a game. But we're in uncharted territory here.
2: Yeah. It's, um, it's also hard to kind of like look at because we don't know how long he's out, right? Uh, so he has the surgery. We hear six to eight weeks. Then – we hear maybe only four weeks, and let me tell you, looking at this schedule, that is a big difference for this football team based <laughs> yeah, on who totally. they're playing. Um, well, because,
0: what do we got? Yeah, we got three three games till the bye, right?
2: Yeah, so you want to read the schedule out loud? I mean, It is, it is very – God, if Big Ben lights up this defense, I might have to retire.
0: <laughs> Mike, can we get the schedule?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Seahawks' next three games, you have – Another two consecutive primetime affairs. Oh, God. Yeah, Sunday Night Football at Pittsburgh. (laughs) Is it too
2: early Ah. to flex us out? You can't do this to America. I
1: know. Okay, so next you have the Saints in Seattle on Monday Night Football. I'm sure that Sean Payton isn't licking his chops one bit. And then you have Jacksonville. At Seattle at 1:05 p.m. Finally, reprieve from the bright lights of night.
0: Man, i I used to just absolutely love when Seattle know, would play, play primetime so cool. games.
2: And then you have Green Bay. So, so if it actually is four weeks, like if Geno Smith plays the way we he played in relief, and we could talk about that. And if the defense uh, plays the way they did against San Francisco, two and two is not impossible with the particular schedule. But any longer than that, and you might as well just call it, call it you know.
0: Well, I've, I've always said the thing that I'm looking for in a backup quarterback is exactly that. If your starter is out for four to six weeks, can they go two and two? Can they go three and three? Can they keep the nostrils above water until the starter comes back? And And I think that Geno looked very capable of doing that. Uh, you know, he, he was out there against one of the best teams in the NFL, no matter how you slice it. And he hasn't taken a real meaningful competitive game on the line snap in three and three years, four years, and he went out and he was dealing, dealing, he was dealing, Mina,
2: dealing. I wanted it so bad for him. I know. Were Were you there?
0: I wasn't at that game. No, no, no. I, I, I did not get to uh, witness that in person. Fortunately, I wouldn't be looking forward to that drive home after.
2: I heard the people chanting Gino though, and I got kind of chills for him. For him, because like, what a moment! And it sucked that it ended the way they did. It did with the locket tripping and stuff. But it it was really interesting to watch Jackson because, just again, having watched ten years of Russell Wilson football now, nearly, um, it just looks so different. And I think that's what we have to prepare for, and I I can't imagine what Shane Waldron is doing right now or or his process because it's an entirely different offense with Geno Smith. He is an entirely different football player. Um, You know, the playmaking is not – he obviously is not the same dynamic playmaker, deep ball threat, as explosive and accurate downfield, and Russell Wilson also is is much better at taking care of the football, by the way, which is something to monitor with Geno generally. But – He is a, when he is playing well, he's a very accurate distributor, and, you know, it does open up the middle of the field, and you really saw that, which is obviously an area where Russell Wilson just doesn't really play. Um, You saw that kind of, that slant game, right, open up and some of the shorter stuff and little inbreakers, and I think getting Gerald Everett back will be big on that front. So there's definitely a universe in which this is a functional offense. Um, Steelers defense is a bit of a challenge, but I'm just kind of curious to see what it looks like.
0: I am too. You know, one thing that and and if if Gino goes out and plays really well, and if the Seahawks go two and one, or God forbid three and zero over oh these stretches, God. we're gonna we're gonna hear some uh, some real Galaxy brain type takes about Gino. But the thing that stood out to me about him, the most marked difference between him and Russ, was again extremely small sample size, but his commitment to staying within the structure of the play. And, you know, Russ has counted on to a fault many times uh, on his ability to make something happen, uh, you know, if that first read isn't isn't there. And Gino looked prepared to go through his reads and make sure the ball was out on time. And as a result, completed 10 of his first 13 passes at like a 12 yard clip. I mean, he he didn't hesitate to go right at Jalen Ramsey on his first two passes like he was ready for that moment. Well, so
2: And I think this is where Seattle potentially has a mismatch is our, our wide receivers are better than Pittsburgh's corners and safeties. Mm-hmm. Um, their defensive line is better than our offensive line. So that's, I think, going to sure. be I wouldn't be surprised as a result if you get um, more RPOs, more screens, a lot of quick game, which is not a Russell Wilson staple to try to neutralize that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think, it's, like I said, it's going to be really interesting because the array of weapons at Geno's disposal is definitely the best he's ever had in his NFL career.
0: Certainly. Certainly. You know, and and I think it's so easy to write off Geno, like, oh, he couldn't make it as a starter, but, like, name me the Jets quarterback that has. Have you watched you know? the Jets
2: lately? <laughs> <laughs> Not great.
0: <laughs> totally. Totally. So um, it's it's kind of a cool chance for a rebirth for him and, and maybe to earn a starting job somewhere, right? If he goes out and plays really good football, he – he can make himself some money and and give himself a chance to sort of rebrand his career as something more than a clipboard carrier. Uh, but if nothing else, I mean, it's just cool to see him get an opportunity to go out, lead a team, to compete, everything. I mean, you expect to hear coaches and players say, yeah, we believe in him and all of that. But it it seems to be more than just your usual when they talk about Gino. And, uh, and that's really encouraging. Just just for him and and as a, a reward if nothing else for all of the coin tosses he's won us
2: <laughs> yeah and they're also like we would like that draft pick. The Jets are going to
0: not be. To <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, high. It's, You're
2: playing for <laughs> the stakes are high. Gino, you hate the Jets. Here's your chance, man. To, seriously, to them.
0: seriously, because I I was considering it was like a foregone conclusion that the first rounders that they traded uh, the Jets for Jamal Adams were going to be tw- you know 24th or later. In which case, you know, they're just slightly higher paid second rounders. But <laughs> it could it could slide for a bit. And with that in mind, I want to zoom out a little bit. You know, Mina, I know you and I have talked about this a number of times before, but I think that Russell Wilson's play has covered a multitude of sins with Seattle's roster, with their in-game coaching, and and I think you could say with their general philosophy for about the last five years. Now that's all gonna be exposed. What what is your take on what the Seahawks look like now that now that we've taken you know, the the cover of Russell Wilson off. What are we looking at?
2: Well, it's so hard because it's going to be, like we've been discussing, it's going to be so different, right? Like, and, and that actually raises questions, too. For example, will Pete Carroll potentially be more aggressive because he doesn't have Russ so to bail funny. him out?
1: You know that that would just inspire the most I know. delicious <laughs> conversation. Super <People laughs> galaxy brain shit, I know.
2: I know was was Russell Wilson forcing Pete Carroll to punt or something? I don't know some dumb
1: shit. Yeah, um, I really think that this might just expose Russ as a system quarterback.
2: You know? <laughs> Dude, it's it's. I, here's a thing I will say: I wouldn't be surprised if, the, if the offensive line both looks better in some ways and worse in others, which is a super wishy-washy thing. But you, you it's not a surprise to you, but you know, it's hard to block for Russell Wilson. Um, This is a known thing. Every offensive lineman I know who watches the Seahawks is like, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. Um, That said, Russell Wilson is also incredibly adept at escaping sacks. It has been his entire career. So it's kind of been like a little bit of a chicken and egg thing. I think now we're going to actually just see what this offensive line looks like, like who they are, um, because they're going to play in front of a quote-unquote normal quarterback. (laughs) Um, So that will be really fascinating for me. I think um, I would expect – DK Metcalf stock to rise and potentially Tyler Lockett's to fall just based again mm-hmm. on the style of quarterbacking. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, this is, you know, for Shane Waldron too, Jackson, like this is I, his opportunity. I would say to call a little bit more Rams like offense than with Wilson um, yep. because Gino is going to play within the structure of what he does.
0: Yeah. Ev- everything that Waldron has talked about and everything you see that, the you know McVay philosophy displays is this timing based passing game right where they they run creatively they force defenses to guess which good god can we just make defenses guess like that's my favorite thing about Shane Waldron is for the first time in 10 years like defenses actually have to think about whether it's going to be a run or a pass uh but but it really is based on just timing, knowing where your reads are and and making anticipatory throws and, and not necessarily the strength of Russell Wilson's game. His other strengths have been more than enough to carry that, but you know, we're, we're to a point where much of the discussion that's surrounded the Seahawks for the last half decade has been about their place in NFL purgatory, right? They're too good, far too good to just tear it down. Uh but not really good enough to be serious title contenders. You know, they've won divisions. They've made the playoffs nine in the last 10 years. And, and for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to talk about, like, 2016 forward. And, and, you know, they haven't been a serious Super Bowl contender at any of those points. They've they've looked like it throughout the course of the season. They've had a win-loss records that seem to support the idea that they could contend for a Super Bowl. And then they get to the playoffs, and... Whenever they're up against those top four, five, six teams in the NFL, there seems to be a really big gap in whether it's talent, scheme, overall philosophy, roster construction, however you want to say it, is how much of that, you know, so much of that discussion has surrounded surrounded the dynamic between Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson. And I want you to get to Pete Carroll in a bit. But one of the names that's largely been left out of that is GM John Schneider. And he came into Seattle from Green Bay's front office and just beat up the draft his first three drafts. I mean, we might never see a 3-year stretch of drafting like that again. Just just plucking Hall of Famers out of nowhere and 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 really be following that up with some aggressive trades that in the moment uh you know had a lot of people lauding the decisions. But what we've seen over the last couple of years is a total breakdown on the defensive end and widening scars on offense. How, what what are your thoughts on John Schneider as the GM of the Seahawks moving forward?
2: I don't think he's done a good job for about four years. Candidly. Um, I mean, I just pulled up the Seahawks draft history. So, you know, we start with the draft, Nobody from 2016. Alex Collins is back, so there's that. (laughs) Uh, 2017, the only player is uh, Ethan Posich, who's returning from injury. Something to keep an eye on, by the way. It's kind of interesting. 2018, Michael Dixon, the god, but that's about it. Um, Yeah. You know, I mean, like, you know, you got your Jamarco Jones, but I'm just talking about like true, actual impact players. No one. Uh, And then the, uh, I think, unforgivable Rashad Penny pick. uh, 2019, DK Metcalf. And, uh, you know, I like, I like Marquise Blair. I actually thought he played, uh, made a couple of impact plays, but that's about it. 2020, Daryl Taylor. Um, I'm, I, I, I think Jordan Brooks has shown some things. I'm not entirely out on him, but, again, for, we're talking about first-round pick. Uh, and then now, you know, we just haven't had a chance to see much of Eskridge that's really bad jackson like it's that really is really bad uh, oh i i think i must have skipped when did draft it? oh he drafted i think Lockett was
1: 15 yep okay and another name that we shouldn't skip over is damian lewis from last year's draft oh, he's been a true. pretty versatile and that's impactful guy from from the jump
2: but isn't that fascinating that like the th- like we're all, it's really only offensive players like in terms of metcalf locket lewis defense has just been absolute nightmare for this team um and that I would include then when you go back to, when you go to the trades too, if you include the Adams trade again, I'm not, that's not me saying Adams is not a useful football player or a good player or has incredible attributes, which I, I don't, I know that a lot of it is shit posting, but I don't agree with that. I think he also gets blamed blame for things that are not his fault at this point. Um, but it was not a good trade. So, you know, like just if we're really trying to evaluate John Schneider neutrally as a GM. So you know, but then you got to like work into things like the Locka contract was really great, for example. Like that ended up being a great deal. I think the Russell Wilson contract was totally reasonable. But you know, just as a whole, though, I think what has through a combination of drafting and free agency, the fact that they went into this season with the cornerback room they had, from a defensive perspective, his record is not good. Yeah. One more thing, the co- the coordinator, that's that falls under him too. So sorry.
0: Ken sure. Norton Jr., sure. yeah,
2: I mean, you know, whatever. It's If we're just going to do the full sweep of what they've done with the defense.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think you're going to find a whole lot of Ken Norton Jr. defenders. Uh, but I, I've i been a defender of John Schneider uh, through most of the criticism over the last five years. It's one of those things. I think there's a lot of confirmation bias where I felt so proud to have a front office of my favorite team that was elite for a number of years. And, and and it was that yeah. that track record of the moves he made, he the man didn't miss for four or five years. Um and then it's felt like he's just been kind of chasing that, right? Trading picks for, you know, big impact players and, and things like that. And most of those moves are ones that I supported in in the moment. I like, I like cool established players. Um but Percy Harvin, Jimmy Graham, Jamal Adams, none of them have fit. And that that I think is I I do think that's a little bit of an indictment on him. It's easy to put that on Pete Carroll, and and I think that the head coach has to wear a lot of that for sure. But I don't know how you can make those trades for those very specific skill sets. All three of those players have very specific skill sets. They're not these great, well-rounded, do-everything-above-average type players. To not have a plan in place, a very specific one, for them that maximizes the traits that make them elite at their position. And and I do think some of that has to fall on Schneider. Yeah.
2: That's really well said about the the GMing and then the fit, because um I think there's a universe in which like Jamal Adams goes to a different team and continues to play really, really well, frankly. And it yeah. is um or Graham, you know, or well, Harvard was a weird one, obviously, you know, but Sure uh yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. It's like imagine if we had traded done the Ramsey trade that the Rams did. you're fine. Like I know they, they and used, that's basically
0: the same trade. It, it was basically, basically the, the same, same trade as Jamal Adams. And they
2: kicked our ass. And like the thing about Jalen Ramsey though is like they do use him very creatively there. We've certainly seen that. But you also don't have to, man. You could just line him up. He's freaking <laughs> so Jalen awesome. Ramsey. Whereas Jamal so Adams, rad. I actually think like you know the coaching matters a great deal. And because our it's been so lackluster on that front for us, um, one thing compounds the other. And and yeah, the the gming. Like if you're going to trade for these players, you have to have a really, really good plan for them and I, it just doesn't seem like we do.
0: Right. I think a lot of us have a tendency to look at NFL trades the way that we might fantasy football trades, right? Like you're just getting this player in their production. So it's either a good trade or a bad trade. But on the actual NFL football field, scheme and, and fit matter so, so much. and it's it's just been it's been sad to see those whiffs because they they're costly. It's not one season right? We've, we've now got Jamal Adams making big boy money for four years. Um, and we've lost draft picks, which is opportunities for cheap influxes of talent. Not that Seattle's done a great job of that, but those are opportunities there that are gone now. You know, these are, these are far reaching decisions that aren't working out. And my approach to a GM has always been, if you can't see them being the GM in three years, they got to go. Can you, because that's that's the impact of the decisions that they're making right now is three years down the line. Would you want to see John Schneider still as the GM of the Seahawks, knowing what we know now over the last 10 years in three years?
2: Um, not if, this is a, a huge caveat, if Ken Norton Jr., <laughs> I feel bad. I, he seems like a lovely man. <laughs> but if the let me he's, let me rephrase. He's it. got
0: like a million Super Bowl rings. He's fine. He's, he, he's good. Okay. He's good.
2: If the coaching stays the same and the defense looks like it does at the end of the year and none of his defensive picks have broken out, then no. So I'm um, that's a caveat. But um you know, like let's say Daryl Taylor goes the hell off and he's shown flashes of that's why I'm like, "Ah, yeah, maybe Daryl Taylor like that player a lot." Yeah.
0: Yeah, he looks great. Then
2: you know maybe we're reevaluating a little bit. Let's say they figure out how to use Jamal Adams. It's week five. It's go- We're going to week six. But if at the end of the season, uh, this conversation we're having, if the tone is the same, I don't want anyone to be there. Frankly, I know. Um, it's, and, I know. and and with Adams in particular, like you mentioned, we got we, he's he's gonna be a Seahawk for a while. I don't think he's done. I think a better coach
0: certainly not. He's like twenty four. Way
2: more out of him. Yeah, better coordinating Yeah, I meant, I meant like I don't think that he still can't be a superstar. I really think like a better coordinator gets a lot more out of him as a player. Again, not just the trade, but a lot has to change for me to say that this front office coaching everything should stay the same.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, I was, had a number of people yesterday ask me if I thought this was the end of an era. And right now, again, week five, quarterback just hurt. The, the deck is stacked in favor of saying yes. But it's getting harder for me to make the argument that it's not. We knew it was coming at some point, right? Whether it be Russell Wilson falling off or leaving the team, whether it be Pete Carroll's message no longer resonating, whether it be John Schneider no longer, uh, you know, hitting doubles and home runs every time he's up to the plate. Does this feel uh, salvageable as as far as the Seahawks that we've known them to be? Is Do you see... Do you see a reality in the next two to three years where this team has Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll, John Schneider all together and winning the way that we've become accustomed to? And if you do see that as a reality, what sort of probability do you put on that?
2: Like when you say winning the way we've been accustomed to, like do you mean let's, Super let's Bowl say team get, or
0: I'm 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 talking I'm talking winning ten to twelve games yeah. and I, I, and and
2: Okay, yeah. So basically playing the like they've played last few years. Um yeah, that yep. probably is high because it's, Russell Wilson, I don't think his play has declined. Watching him this year, I think he looks as good as he's ever been. And I think he's he really he so special that, you know, the NFL is such a quarterback-driven league. They also have a pair of wide receivers who are both in their 20s who are still going to be around for a while, and <laughs> around like a live. But no, no, like on this team. I So, you know, I think this op- the, the combination, assuming Russell Wilson is a Seahawk, the combination of him – and those two wide receivers basically guarantees that this team will always be competitive, regardless of how crappy other things are. Um, I know. Will they rise above that with Pete Carroll? Only if there's a dramatic change in philosophy in terms of not just defensive coaching, but coaching more broadly.
0: Yep. Yep. I, I agree. And And a big part of all of this, you know, what does Seattle's immediate and intermediate future look like has to do with the fact that they play in the NFC West, which is looking like one of the best divisions the NFL has seen in a very long time. Stepping back from the Seahawks a little bit, looking at the the division as a whole, how do you see it shaping up the rest of the way this season? And and how do you handicap the prospects of each of the four teams, let's just say, over the next couple of seasons?
2: So I don't think the Cardinals are as dominant as they've been. Um I was actually so we previewed that game that this coming up upcoming game um, on my podcast uh, earlier today we talked about uh, Browns Cardinals and then let me actually I want to make sure I get this right because my brain is so fried what's the other there's one other oh Chargers Ravens is the other good game um, and I was I was looking at it I was like I think the Browns are gonna win because. I actually think the Car- First of all, the Cardinals are missing Rodney Hudson, potentially Chandler Jones, and they lost um, their tight end Max Williams. And while I think that Kyler is like unbelievable, basically he's like young peak rest to me in a lot of ways. And I think the Cardinals have very good defensive coaching, by the way, contrast to Seattle. Um, they're kind of a fragile team. Like if you take away one of their skill players, I, because they're not terribly uh, diverse when it comes to their pass game. I think they're going to have some problems, or if you take away a key cog on their offensive line, whereas on the defensive side of the ball, I think you can run on them, and I think the Browns are going to run all over them. But you asked me about the division and like how things shake out. I really don't think the Cardinals are necessarily going to run away with it. I think that the Cardinals and the Rams, I know the Cardinals like beat them down, but I ultimately wouldn't be surprised if things get a little bit closer by the end of the year. Uh, and then I think the Seahawks and the Niners are kind of in the next tier as they kind of figure out what's going on with Trey Lance. There's just a lot of injuries on that team.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's uh, Coming into the season for me, I thought it was a, a three-team race with the Rams, the Niners, and then very specifically Russell Wilson. And then a drop down to the Cardinals. That's been flipped on its head for me. Um, it, it really does look like a two-horse race. Now, granted, we are – a third of the way into the season and we are seeing injuries at a rate we've never seen before. We've got an extra game for madness to take place. So by by no means is the book written on this as being a two team race, but if it, it feels that way for me and the Rams just look and feel better than the Cardinals in my opinion.
2: You know, they're just it feels a little bit more sustainable, I think. That's all. Um cuz the Cardinals really like they barely beat they really the Niners' didn't convert, like, four fourth downs. Uh, but otherwise, like, they held, held them in check. And, and then they should have lost to the Vikings, right? So we're talking about a 5-0 and o team, but it's like, eh. You know, granted, again, they beat down the Rams, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. To me, they actually remind me, Jackson, a lot of, like, certain Seahawks teams from the last few years in that I think they have, like, a generational quarterback who is lifting everyone up. And some really good skill players. And, and you know, it's absurd. DeAndre Hopkins is ridiculous. But yeah. I don't think that I don't look at them and see like a complete roster, um, the way I do when I look at like a Buffalo, for example.
0: Oh man, yeah, totally, totally. How f- man? How much fun are Bills fans having right now?
2: I'm a Ravens fan now. I've actually, I, I've uh, been traded to the Ravens.
0: <laughs> okay, you, want, you can join okay, me. I'm, I, I, hey, Sixth I, eight. I love, I love it. There's like five teams in the AFC that I am super into. Ravens being one of them. I'm I. I'm all about Lamar Jackson right now, but Bills, Chiefs, Browns, Chargers, like those five teams are just playing eminently watchable football every week right now. Super, super fun. Uh, One AFC team that is not is the Steelers. Seattle still does have to play football. They've got the Steelers this week. If Seattle wins this game, what are the three things they did to do that?
2: Ooh, okay. This is good. I was actually just pulling up the Steelers injury report because I do think that is pertinent. Obviously Juju's not playing. Um Melvin no Elman Ingram's probably gonna play. Damn it. Um <laughs> Devin Bush is playing and Claypool's limited, but he's probably gonna play. Damn it. Okay. I think probably it's they're pretty healthy. So all right, so and then Ben Brogsberger is permanently did not practice. Okay. Three things are this Geno Smith has to look like he did in relief um, of Wilson in the last game. I think mm-hmm. if he plays at that level, they absolutely can do it. Uh, ball out quick, you know, um, uh, so that you can kind of neutralize the Steelers' pass rush. Because, like I said, I do think the Seal players there's an advantage there. So that's one thing. Um, second thing is the Seahawks defense has to basically <laughs> play Roethlisberger the way every defense should play Roethlisberger, which is sit on sit on those routes um, and and not get bullied up. Treat front. it like the
0: Niners game. Dude, yeah, absolutely. Treat it, like the, treat it like the
2: Niners game. Ryan Neal needs to be in the freaking lineup. Um Seriously. but also like the in the last game, Jackson, the uh Steelers actually were extremely dominant on the ground, which took me surprised surprise because it's an offensive line that has struggled. But the run game Najee Harris had this huge day, and it was largely because the Steelers um front the offensive line was has played their best football. So I would say Steelers just the Seahawks defense not needs to not get bullied by what's previously been a very bad uh, Steelers offensive line and then the other thing is you know like I think um Pete Carroll needs to not just like be content with like you know 13 to 10 or whatever and, and settle basically um because uh I I think there's going to be the temptation to do, th- do so against this team in particular
0: one of the things that was frustrating to me uh, about the Rams game and a lot of Seahawks games recently but uh was the fourth down decision making right? Not going for it on fourth and short on the Rams like forty or forty one yard line, uh, and then you know they did go for it on on fourth and short from the twenty seven. Uh, a couple drives later, that I appreciated. Didn't love the play call, but that's fine. My my fear is that those two outcomes: choosing choosing to punt, and then you know being able to quote unquote flip the field. And then choosing to go for it and not getting it is is going to reinforce sort of what I, what I just straight up deem as cowardice from Pete Carroll on 4th on Down. Did you see his press conference today no. talking about analytics on 4th Down? Oh,
2: God. What did he say? I'm scared.
0: He said the analytics will tell you to go for it every That's time.
2: That's not true. That is absolutely <laughs> not true.
0: I know and he's like, but that's, you know, basically that's not the whole story. We're not, we're not necessarily going to do that. And it's just like, man, it's fine to me. If as the head coach of an NFL football team in 2021, you don't want to put all of your eggs in the analytical basket, the way that Brandon Staley is doing the way that John Harbaugh is doing and and having tremendous success with, I I get it. But to just be wrong. <laughs> yeah. just,
2: well, the other thing is like no know, know your team, man. Your defense sucks. Your defense that's sucks. That's it. That's all. Forget the analytics. Forget you know because okay, so the way like when every team has their own model that tells you whether to go for it on fourth down, and you guys have probably seen like ESPN puts out our win probability whether like it goes up or down or whatever based on a decision to kick or go for it or punt. Um, those models are all very different. Ours does not take it into consideration the individual matchup. Like, oh, the, we've got the Seahawks offense against the Chiefs defense. We should probably run the ball, or whatever, like on first down, because they suck at stopping the run. The model considers, like, down distance, you know, time left, all that stuff. So, there's absolutely things that are not captured by uh, go-for-it models. Now, I, now I know teams do their own work, so, so that's probably different, frankly, so I don't want to, like, speak for every decision. What Also is not captured, then, is like your own ability to live up to that decision, candidly. Like, self-awareness is the most important thing any NFL coach or GM can have. I love it when a GM knows their team sucks. (laughs) I love it when a head coach knows their strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's been what's so frustrating is, like, if it was 2013, we'd be like, yeah, all right, our defense is going to get a stop, but it's 2021, and we suck. Our defense sucks.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. And and I think the frustration, too, just comes with, like, it is very clear who the best player on your team is. So on your highest leverage plays, yes. why are we not putting the ball in his hands? Even when they went for it, right? They just ran into an eight-man front. And it's just like you you have Russell Wilson. Like, I could live with going for it on fourth down and Russ throwing an incompletion.
2: Dude, and by the way, you know, Staley and Harbaugh get mentioned a lot as, like, analytics-friendly coaches, and they absolutely are. But they also go for it on fourth down because they trust their quarterbacks. Both of them have immense trust in their quarterbacks. And I think both of them, gun to their head, would tell you they trust their quarterbacks more than their defenses right now. Mm -hmm. So Pete Carroll, like, that's what we're talking about. This ain't about numbers, man. It's about you have one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL and your defense trashed. So, anyways, that's the end of my rant. You got me. You got me riled up.
0: <laughs> well, listen, I, <laughs> I can spend the rest of the day talking ball with you. Uh, but we all do have lives to live, and you've been extremely gracious with your time today. Uh, I know you've been doing the car wash at ESPN this week, hitting all the shows, giving the people what they want. Uh, so so thank you for that. And as always, I want to thank everyone for everyone who's listening for supporting the show, whether it's here on Twitter, Facebook through the reviews y'all have left. And of course, reading the column every week. And I really, really do want to thank you Mina for joining us. And can you just tell the people where they can find you?
2: Yeah. So my podcast is called the Mina Kaim show featuring Lenny. So you can also you can check it out wherever you get your pods. Um, and you can catch me on first take uh, well, on NFL live, but on first take on Tuesday, Stephen A. Smith is a Steelers fan. Jackson, if Geno Smith <laughs> beats Ben Roethlisberger, I'm going to talk so much shit. Let's go. Actually, I I ended up in a pretty good position because no one now everyone expects us to lose, yeah. right? So it's not like, oh my God, Russell Wilson lost to Ben Roethlisberger. That would be devastating personally for me. Now there's only upside. So I'm feeling great.
0: Well, he's he's chomping because the last time you guys talked Ste- Seahawks Steelers, it was which team is in more trouble. Yeah, I know. It's not <laughs> and, great. and neither were looking good. Yeah, not good. But uh not that, great. That, yeah. that was <laughs> and uh you you got him on that one.
1: So if you had to choose from a list, are you thinking that Keith Butler's defense is going to hoodwink, bamboozle, lead astray, <laughs> run amuck, or flat out deceive Geno Smith?
2: Um mm run amok feels right for, for how this is going to go
0: <laughs> that's going to be a great viewing experience at the end of our weekend <laughs> <Sad>. <laughs> hey uh again thank you and guys listening you can find me uh, on twitter at jackson bevins remember that is j-a-c-s-o-n mike is at at mike barwin And the show is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. And of course, this show and every article at FieldGoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. We're also on Instagram now at Cigar Thoughts NFL. And and a couple of features that we unveiled last week that we're going to continue moving forward. uh, We're going to go live on Twitter pregame. And that'll be an opportunity for you guys to ask questions, talk about the game, what we're looking for, what to expect. Uh, things of that nature. And then uh, we are now doing audio reads of the articles after each game. So you can look for that uh, Monday morning. Uh, feedback on the first one's been great. And, and I know a lot of people are grateful for the opportunity to consume the column without having to sit down and open up the laptop. So uh, be look on the lookout for that. And if you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your preference. That type of feedback means the world to us, especially as we, get going uh, at the beginning of this show. And, and we're always looking to build momentum so that we can keep bringing this show and keep bringing an incredible guest like Mina. So that'll do it next week. We'll be back with Joe fan, uh, former Seahawks beatman and current host of the bet to win sports gambling podcast. He is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. Good golfer, handsome fella. Uh, <laughs> but until then, thank you to Mina. Thank you to Mike onwards and upwards.